The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Um, our scripture today will be from in Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. Um, if you're reading from the Bibles that are under your chairs, it'll be in on page 926, or you can follow on the screen behind me. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another King Jesus, and the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, and arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word was the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is a reading of the word. You may be seated. So as a church, we're wrapping up a season of fasting and prayer that we've been in for the past five weeks. And what we've been doing is we've been asking as a church together, we're four and a half years now into being a church. We're asking as a church, as a baby church, as an adolescent church, as a childlike church, we're saying, God, we don't know what needs to happen next. And we're asking that you would lead us. Would you speak to us? Would you guide us? Would you show us what you have for us next? I hope you've been praying and I hope you've been fasting. I hope I haven't been the only one hungry on Wednesdays. So we're four and a half years into being a church and about five and a half years into the, from the idea of doxa, where a small group of us gathered together saying, God, would you use us to plant a church to help reach Myrtle Beach? And we've had from the very beginning, as we were gathering and 
16 people at the rec center and Carolina Forest on Sunday nights. We brought everything in to set up in a, uh, a duffel bag. You guys remember that? The people were around. We had a, a duffel bag that had two wheels on it, and we would wheel that in. And every week, faithfully, Dale and Keetra would bring a little Hormel cheese and ham and cracker tray, and that was our snacks for the week. And we might have coffee. That was kind of the, that was kind of our deal. We'd bring everything in, and we're just praying and, and brainstorming and talking about God. Would you turn us and would you help us become a church that reaches the Grand Strand area? And we've had one mission and one mission. One vision from the very beginning. And the mission is to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. That basically should be the mission and is the mission of every church. No church gets to think up what the mission that we're called to do is. Jesus, who is the Lord and the senior pastor of the church at large, he's the one that gave us the mission. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. That's the job that we've all been given. And so uh, success or failure as a church, any church, must be determined on are we being faithful in making disciples? And the second part of our mission statement is to who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. That's just our way of saying, kind of teasing out, this is what a, a disciple who's growing as a disciple of Jesus looks like. It's not someone who uh, is gritting their teeth and saying, oh, this is what God's called me to go to church and God's called me to read and God's called me not, not to do these things. And he's called me to do these things. And I wish I could do these things, but I'm supposed to do these things. And so it's sort of like we grit our teeth and push our way through it. You guys ever been around or maybe you have been or are a professing Christian who is just kind of kind of acidic, like you don't want to be around them. Their their face is always like like a raisin, like kind of scrunched up. They have and and, and you're like, man, this this person is not someone I want to be around. Or maybe you look yourself in the mirror and you're like, I'm that person. Like, that's not what a disciple looks like. A disciple is someone who finds joy in serving Jesus Christ. It's someone who finds joy in bowing their knee to the Lord and Savior and finds there the life that we've all been made for. Because he's the one that you are made for and you are made by. And as Augustine said, our hearts are restless, are, are searching, are groping around until they find rest in him. And if you're here this morning and you've, that's sort of like the tenor of your life. Like you just, if you're honest with yourself this morning, you're, the tenor, the story of your life is that you've been restless, clawing around the, the picture that even Paul gives in this, uh, later on in this chapter today is someone who is clawing and feeling around, groping around, trying to find the meaning of life, trying to find the source of true joy and happiness. You will not find it. You will find something that will please you for a while, but it, it never pleases very long, does it? I mean, the iPhone, the iPhone 7 Plus was only good for so long, and now it's the X, and that's only going to be good for so long. The new house, the new car, the new clothes, the new girl, the new guy, the, the kid, the, the, whatever it is for you that is singing the siren song to you that this is where you can find joy and happiness, it, it never satisfies, and it always takes more the next time. And it's like I always use that example of the diminishing returns, like the Krispy Kreme, the hot fresh sign now. You guys heard me talk about that. The first one is good. The second one's okay. The third one's never as good as the first. And however deep you may go in that dozen, no judgment here today but they're never as good as the first one is. And that's the way life is when we're searching and groping around for joy and pleasure when we're searching for it in anywhere other than Jesus. 
to find him, to become his disciple, to submit to him, is to find your source, source of true joy and life. And that's why our mission is to make disciples who can find that source of joy in worshiping Jesus with their whole lives. And our vision has been to plant a church in every community and in a community group in every neighborhood along the Grand Strand. That's been our mission and our vision from the very beginning. The mission comes from Jesus, and the vision is what we see Paul and his church planning team doing here in the book of Acts. And we've seen success. We've seen people become disciples. But as, I don't know if you have the same thought as we study the book of Acts as as I have. I see when I read Acts, and whenever I, I look around in my life, I won't speak for you, but when I look around my life and I look around even our church or the church at large, I see a both a qualitative and a quantitative difference in the effect that I see when Paul is living life on mission than when I see what happens around us. Do you guys see that maybe in your own life? Let's read Acts 17, 1 through 6. I know uh, it was already read for us. But let's read it again. Now, when they, that's Paul and his church planting team, they're on a church planting journey. They're going from city to city planting churches. When they had passed through, you did a great job. It would pass through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica or Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So that's a local church of Jews who are worshiping the Lord there. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days in a row, so that's three Saturdays in a row, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. So they had seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, so the brothers had already hid Paul and church planting team somewhere else, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now that sentence stands out to me because the people who are crying this out to the authorities, they do not mean that as a compliment. These men who have turned the world upside down, who have, who have come in and subverted the way that we live life and have done that in city after city that they've been to, now they've come here and they want to subvert the way that we live life here. So we need to do something about this. Those men, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. We see the gospel arrive in a city As Paul and the church planning team are going around, we see that it has a dramatic effect everywhere that it goes. Not all of it is positive, right? Every single city that we've seen, practically, there's been, it says, some people believed, some people got angry, and and then they get pushed out of the city and Paul may end up getting stoned or something. 
So some people love it, some people hate it, but it has a dramatic effect everywhere it goes. The gospel is non-ignorable whenever this church planning team shows up in each city. Those men that have turned the world upside down have come here also. It has a dramatic effect. In each city that they go to, we see that lives are changed. People who once worshipped a false god or had no trust in Jesus Christ are awakened and come to believe in him. Lives are changed and whole entire households and families are changed. We saw that in the passage last week that Jonathan covered for us. Whole entire households are changed. Someone becomes a believer. The wife becomes a believer. The kids become a believer. The servants become believers. And think of the effect that would have for generations upon that family. And upon that city and that neighborhood as the husband. And he's now he's around his friends and he's professing Christ. And the mother, she's around her friends and she's professing Christ. And the kids are going to school and they're professing Christ. And the servants are around their friends and they're professing Christ. And all the people that they do business with, they're now seeing the change in their lives. Think of how it would change not only that household, but it would t- change entire neighborhoods. It would change entire industries. It would change entire cities. It would change entire regions. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here. Also in this, this people is what we have been fasting and praying for. It's it's not just saying the least of my concerns that I've been praying about is say, God, we need set up and tear down this hard. We need a, we either need more help or we need a a built a church building so we don't have to do this anymore. That's a very, you know, God may give us a building at some point and I'm sure he will, but that's the very least of our concerns. The reason that we're here as a church is because there are thousands and tens of thousands of people all around the Grand Strand who today, in their eyes, Jesus is completely ignorable. They have not seen and have not, certainly have not experienced the change that happens whenever you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and discover the joy and purpose of life that you were made to find they are searching desperately for the endless summer to find happiness and joy and contentment there and whatever the picture that may be it may be the perfect house and the perfect lawn on the beside a golf course or it might be playing golf or it might be uh, having a successful business or it might be uh, look being popular it might be uh, parting it might be whatever the case may be for them they're searching desperately for the joy and peace that you and I if you're a believer have found in Jesus Christ they're desperately searching for that and for them Jesus is completely ignorable they are consumed with everything that consumes their lives when they are not confronted with the claims of Christ upon their life to either reject it or to accept it, to find joy and happiness or to utterly turn their backs on it. But the thing that they're often turning their backs on is a false gospel. So that leads me to ask two questions. The thing that we've been fasting and praying for is that 
that God would bring us a conviction and direction so that we can fulfill the, the vision as we see fulfilled here in Acts as they go from city to city and cities are turned upside down, lives are turned upside down, households are turned upside down, industries are turned upside down, cities and regions are turned upside down. We're praying, God, would you do this in us? And that leads me to ask two questions, and I hope it leads you to ask these questions too. Number one, how does this kind of change happen? And number two, why don't we see it happening more? Why does this kind of change happen? And why don't we see it happening more? And we see, uh, we see three ways as we're going to move quickly. We see three ways that we see that this kind of change happens in this passage, Acts 17. We see, first of all, that the gospel turns religion upside down. We see, secondly, the gospel turns rebellion upside down. And we see, thirdly, the gospel turns believers Upside down. The gospel turns religion upside down, rebellion upside down, and the gospel turns believers upside down. First of all, the gospel turns religion upside down. So in every city that Paul and the church planning team, it's kind of ridiculous how low this thing is for me, isn't it? I'm not going to say it was a Dale-sized stool that we ordered. (laughs) I am not saying that at all. Hey, guys, I don't... By the way, just as a parenthesis, Dale has a birthday this week. In two days, Dale turns 40. He's a man now. So celebrate how that, however you see fit. I'm sure you all have off work that day because it's a very big deal. So Paul and the church planting team are in the middle of a church planting journey. They're going city to city, and it's having great effects in every single city that they go to. And it's having so, such a great effect that, that not only are, as they go to each city do people believe and some people oppose it, but some people are so riled up about how successful Paul and his church planting team are being that, that they are actually following them from city to city to try to squash what is happening as Paul and the team visits there. And now we see them there in Thessalonica. Or Thessalonica, uh, and they dragged Jason, some of the brothers before them, and that Jason received them. They're all acting, uh, they said that Jason received them. They're all acting as the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, uh, the interesting thing that we see here in Thessalonica and the, uh, most of the other cities that they visit is they go to the city, and the first thing that Paul does is he finds the local synagogue, the local gathering of the Jews, the local church. And he goes in there and he reasons with them. He tells them, hey, you guys have been uh, worshiping the one and only true God. That's awesome. You guys have seen that you are sinners and that you need a sacrifice to pay for your sin debt before God. And that's the sacrificial system that is going on in Jerusalem. And you've been waiting for the Messiah to come. And I'm here to tell you the Messiah has, has come. He is Jesus. And he has once for all paid the sin debt that you owe to God, that you recognize as a Jew once and for all. And so therefore, you need to put your faith and trust in him as your personal Lord and Savior. He is the Son of God come to save you incarnate. And he would go to each 
synagogue in each city as he goes, and he would share that with them. But it doesn't go very well for him. In almost every single synagogue, you'll see it says like a a few people believed. Oftentimes they'll say a a lot of the Gentile believers, because each synagogue would have uh, some uh, Gentiles or non-Jews who recognize the the validity of the Jewish faith, and they kind of are align themselves with them, even though they're not full Jews, they would be around and they, they hear it and they believe, but what happens invariably is each city that he goes to, it gets the Jews, particularly the leaders of the Jews angry whenever he comes in and they proclaims the gospel. It gets them angry. And it does so because the gospel is by its very nature disruptive to religion and it's challenging to religion. There are two main ways that you and I and every single person who is alive today, every single person has tried to find our own way to be our own Lord and Savior. We don't want to admit that we need a Lord who is, hey, that's very anti-American, right? Like, I'm my own man. I get to choose my own way. I get to decide what I want to do. And nobody can tell me what to do, right? That's the big American Western narrative. Nobody can tell me what to do with my life. I have certain unalienable rights. I am the king of my own life, the king of my own castle. And to recognize Jesus or God as being the Lord is to say, no, I don't get to make my own, call the own shots in my life. I have to bow my knee to him. And to say that he is my savior says that I need something to be saved from. And the gospel says you need to be saved from yourself because you are a sinner. And by nature, by by both nature and by choice, you are opposed to the rule of the almighty creator, God, the king of heaven and earth who made you for himself for his own purposes. And to admit that he should be the, and to hear that he should be my king, that he should be my Lord, and he should be my savior, just, it does, it does numbers inside our soul. It hits up against our pride. It hits up against our sense of self-worth, our sense of value. We do not like that by nature. And, by, and we will find every single way we can not to recognize his lordship and to recognize our need for him to be our savior. And a very sneaky way that happens is through religion. Religion comes in and, and I'm, I'm, we're drawing a, a distinction here because Christianity is a religion, but we're drawing a distinction between Christianity and a relationship with the one and only true God, a covenantal, life-giving, real relationship with the one and only true God, and religion being a system of saying, of keeping the right rules, of living the right way. And if I can accept a uh, an idea that religion is living the right way. There's something called, uh, you can Google this later if you're not familiar with the term, it'd be helpful. There's a lot of articles about it, but there's something called moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. So a group of guys did a study in 2005 and they wanted to know what did teenagers believe, a Christian teenagers. And they came back and said, here's what Christian teenagers believe these days. They believe, number one, there's a God. They believe, number two, that God wants us to be nice and moral. He wants to be nice to each other. He wants us to be moral. Thirdly, they they believe that the purpose of life was to be happy and find fulfillment. And fourthly, they believe that uh, God wasn't really involved in life until we had a problem. And fifthly, they believed that God, that the way to get into heaven is being good. And so I believe, if I believe in a God who is... uh, 
is here to keep me happy and here to keep me healthy. And I believe that the purpose of God is to help me bail me out of trouble, but he's not really involved in my life until I feel down. And then I can read a, an encouraging verse or a, something on a coffee mug or go to an encouraging service and sing some encouraging songs that make me feel better about myself. Then like, okay, I'm, I'm satisfied and I can go, leave from there feeling better about myself. And well, I'm going to be a good and generally moral person. And because I'm more good than I am bad, God's going to let me in the heaven if there is a heaven at the end of the day. And that's not just what teenagers believe. That's really what most evangelical or professing Christians in America believe today. They believe in moral, therapeutic deism. God wants us to be moral and nice, therapeutic. God wants me to feel better about myself and deism. Like there is a God, but he's not really actively present and involved in my life today. And that is a way that Satan uses to make us feel better about ourselves and not see our need for a savior. Because if I can, if I can compare myself to keeping certain laws or keep certain, keep keeping certain rules or not doing certain things. So it looks like this and it sounds childish when we say it out loud, but we play this game in our heads because I go to church X number of Sundays out of the month and I give X amount of money and I don't, do these things and I don't vote for these guys, then I'm a Christian and I'm okay. And I can look at the people around me and feel better about myself because they're not as good as I am. And we live a comparison religion that compares my life compared to other people and I come out ahead and so I feel okay about myself. Never asking, am I, have I actually been born again? Have I been remade by the Spirit of God? Have I actually bowed my knee in repentance to Him and professed that He is the Lord and I'm not? That He calls the shots that I don't. The gospel comes in and says, You are far worse off than you ever thought that you were. And he says that to both the religious and the non religious people alike. And it challenges the self righteousness of religion. And religious people hate the gospel. Because first of all, it tells them you're not as good as you think you are. And then it tells them, but you know what? Jesus died for your sins. You didn't do anything to deserve it. By putting your faith and trust in him, you can be reborn. And they hate that. You know why? Because they look at the person beside them who's not as good at them. And they say, why did they get off? Why do they get by with doing all the things that they've done and I've been better and I have to enter into the same gate? And they would rather stay outside of the gate and live their own moral, therapeutic, deistic life than to bow their knee and go through the same door as the sinner. I would rather not admit that I'm a sinner in need of the grace, unmerited favor of God on my behalf than to bow my knee and enter the same door as that guy. The gospel challenges the self-righteousness of religion and the people who are religious and in that system hate it. And the gospel challenges the power system of religion. That's why the leaders were coming after. They hated Paul and his church planning team so much they were following them city to city because they saw that it threatened their power system. Because here's how the power system, you can already see it, right? The power system of religion looks like, have you guys ever been in, I call it the caste system in church. 
where certain people are just naturally better at keeping their stuff together or looking like they have their stuff together. And they look better on Sunday mornings and all the church meetings. And they rise in positions of influence in the church because they look like they have their stuff together. And the people who aren't as good at holding their stuff together, they look low in the eyes of the rest of the church because they're always a mess. And so we create this sort of power system in church. So that's different levels of I can feel really good about myself and about the people that I surround myself because we're at this level. And, oh, you're at this level? And it blinds me the fact that we are all messes. Every single one of us. You may look better than the other people around you, but the chances are if you look better, your mess might be even worse. The gospel challenges the power system of religion, and those who are in it hate it. Because at its base, the gospel is challenging our desire and our ability to be our own Savior and our Lord. The gospel humbles the moral. Those who are moral need Christ as much as, this, as those who are immoral. But in some ways, they're at, a, they're at a disadvantage to those who are immoral because they're more likely not to see their need. The Myrtle Beach lies in the belt, in the, in the buckle of the Bible belt. And we see this all over our community, right? Maybe you... Maybe you are this person. Maybe you work with them. Maybe they're a family member. And when they profess Christ and everybody knows that they're a Christian or they go to church, they talk about their church all the time. But every time they open their mouth about whatever, you cringe. When they talk about politics, when they talk about other people, when they talk about other races, they, they open their mouth and you cringe. You're like, how in the world can you profess Christ? How in the world can you let, let everybody, just don't let people know you go to church. Don't let people know you're Christians. Still say the crazy, terrible things, but don't let people know that you're this, right? But religion comes in, the cultural Christianity that we live in and the, being in the buckle of the Bible belt comes in and it lures people into saying that Christianity is something that's cultural. Christianity is a voting block that you're a part of or a, or a church like a country club that you belong to and you feel okay about yourself because you do these things or you don't do these things or you don't vote for this person and you do vote for this person and therefore, therefore you're in, you're okay and all the while it is like a, it is a song that sings them to sleep when they do not see and we do not see our need. That's why sometimes being in church is the most dangerous place to be. Because it can lure you into feeling like you're okay. And you look around morally superior, feeling morally superior to the people around you, feeling self-righteous. And all the while, you might be on committees, you might be helping to set up, you might be doing whatever. And you are not a believer in Christ. Religion can be a way to shield ourselves from our need for a Lord and Savior. And the gospel calls those who are religious to repent. But the good news is that as Paul and his planning team go to each city and they proclaim this to those who are religious, some people hate it, but some people are awakened from death to life. The gospel awakens sleepy Christians. Christians who have been kind of just... You've driven from 
you ever been on the road, like from particularly a long stretch of interstate where there's not interesting, not anything interesting, like say Florence to, to Columbia? There, I can't tell you how many times I've been from Florence to Columbia, and I don't remember half of the trip. Like in the, the sun was warm, and I'm driving by myself, and the next thing I realized, like I don't remember, like I I don't remember the last thirty minutes of this drive because I fell into some sort of ha- full sleep or half sleep or just hypnotized by the stripes on the road. There's so many Christians that live that kind of life. And the gospel is threatening to us, but it, but, to, but it can also awaken sleepy Christians. And it can enliven nominal Christians. Those, those of us and those, those people around us who are at our workplaces and our families and even in this church who call, profess the name of Christ, who are vocal about being a Christian or vocal about being a, in, in church, but they are, their lives do not line up with it. The gospel can awaken them. The gospel turns religion upside down. Then the gospel also turns rebellion upside down. The next city that, well, after Paul goes to uh, um, Thessalonica, he goes to Berea. Uh, the, I, we don't have time to cover this passage. It would be a great sermon in itself. Um, but the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Uh, this verse 10, when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things, if these things were so. And many of them, therefore, because they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, therefore, many believed. I pray that would be the story here in the Grand Strand. Then Paul gets uh, chased out of Berea as well. The rest of the church planning team is left there, and he goes to Athens by himself. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in Nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now we call that Facebook and Twitter. So Paul goes to Athens, and Athens was a very different city than uh, Berea or Thessalonica. Athens was the leading cultural and intellectual city in the Roman Empire. And it had hundreds of years of being this intellectual and cultural center. And as a city, they did not believe in God, at least not the one true God that the Jews believed in. They believed in many gods, but really at the core of the intellectual elite and the cultural elite were the, these two bands of philosophies. That one was the Stoics and the others were the Epicureans. And without boring us all and going into it, because I know how much you guys love philosophy and love history, the Stoics believed that uh, they didn't believe in God per se. They believed like sort of a 
like the, there's a spirit of the world that we all are kind of a part of, but not a, not of a, not a God. And they believed that a true meaning of life was found in following your duty, like being a good moral person. And that following your duty, that's kind of what meaning in life was found. And there was called the Epic, the other group called the Epicureans. And they believed uh, that they were, that there possibly were gods, but they were very far removed. Uh, and they believed that uh, life, meaning in life was found in, in filling yourself up with pleasure. So you have the people who lived Genuinely, morally upright lives, but not like we would consider from the Jewish scripture, but uh, genuinely moral lives, a sense of duty. Then you had the people who said, man, we just want to fill up on everything that is fun and pleasurable, and that's what life is all about. Doesn't that sound like, so even though Myrtle Beach sits in the belt of the, of the, the buckle, I keep saying that the buckle of the Bible belt, also we have all these people who have moved here from other areas of the country that are non-church areas and we combine that with the fact that every single survey that's come out recently where they're asking people about religious beliefs, that young people are believing in God less and less and less. There's a, a whole category that was a very small category years ago in America called the nuns. That's, a, that's not like nuns with the hats and the stuff, but, a, but the, the, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who don't believe in anything. And that's the fastest growing segment of society and particularly in young people so as they're coming up that's that number is growing so we have uh, we're in the bible belt so you have that kind of flowing in to the deal but then you also have all these people from unchurched to non-christian areas flowing in non-bible belt areas of the country and then these young people that are growing up who increasingly don't believe in god and this is all mixing in the place here and don't we see that in our neighborhoods and our families like the people who don't profess anything in christ so they're the people who live like a sense of life with a sense of duty it might be to their family or to their business or to the community like they pour themselves into doing good things for the community community uh, events they are really committed to their family something that you're like man you're a better mom or better dad than i am and i'm a professing christian they're committed to their work like they're duty people and then you have people over here who are just like man let's just pleasure right whatever is pleasurable let's just that's what life is all about let's just fill ourselves up on pleasure and find meaning in life there and when the Athenians heard Paul, they thought he was a babbler. They didn't believe in any of this Jesus stuff, or certainly not even God's stuff. But we look around and we see these people, and it seems to be a, not just locally here as we have this influx coming in, but also as a society at large, it's, it's a growing number of people who don't profess faith in Christ, not just don't profess profess faith in Christ, they don't even admit that there's a God at all. Our culture has totally changed over the last couple of decades than what it was before, right? And some of us look on and we say, man, we wish we could go back to the old days. And some of us look on and we say, man, I don't even think there's any hope at all. Just God return and like blow the whole thing up and let's just start over again. Let's get to heaven. I see no hope here. But I see here in this passage a great hope. Because the same way that Athens ended up being reached for Christ and changed as a city is the same way that Myrtle Beach and the Grand Strand and South Carolina and the United States and beyond can be changed. Because Athens was even more pagan and just as intellectually opposed to God as the most hardened parts of our culture that we see. 
The gospel is disruptive to the, reb- to the rebel as well as to the religious. And the gospel is challenging to the rebel just as it is to the religious. The gospel challenges the fulfillment of the rebel. Paul comes in and he, and he says, hey guys, I see as I was walking around your city that you have lots of idols and that you worship all these gods. And you have this one spot that doesn't have an idol on it and it says dedicated to the unknown God. So even you in your life, even though you say that you don't believe in God, you have all these idols around and you even have this one place that's reserved for the unknown God. Your life, it doesn't line up with the, with the ideas that you profess as there being no God. The gospel challenges the fulfillment of the person who is, or who is in open rebellion to God. It says, this, asks this question, how's, this, how's your life working for you apart from God? Does your life really look, well, there's so many ways we can go into, I don't have time here, to, but does your life actually look like a person who doesn't believe there is a God? If you believe there is no God, that there could be actually no objective morality. There could be like the, the powerful taking advantage of the weak and someone killing those who they have advantage over. There's no way to say that that's wrong apart from there being some sort of God who determines there to be right and wrong. Because if we're all just left on our own and we're all just in charge of ourselves, then it is absolutely survival of the fittest. And it would be wrong to tell somebody who takes advantage of the weaker person that they're wrong. Think about all the stories that are coming out recently about these men who have taken advantage of women and in power have taken advantage of women. How can we say that's wrong? Because if they were powerful, they had every right to take advantage of them unless there's something above all of us that says this is right and this is wrong. The gospel challenges the fulfillment and challenges the intellectual system of the rebel. But that's base, the gospel, just as it challenges the religious, the gospel challenges the rebels' desire and ability to be their own savior and lord. At the heart, the religious person and the irreligious person, the religious and the rebel are both looking for the same thing, to hide themselves from the lordship and the need of a savior of Jesus Christ by trying to go their own way. It just looks different. The gospel humbles the religious or the moral, and it humbles the independent. Lastly, and very quickly. So we'll see that Paul and the church planning team, they take, they go to each city and they turn the religious system in that city upside down because they bring the gospel to bear to people who are looking to be their own savior and Lord through religion. They go to those who are irreligious or those who are rebellious against God and it, it challenges them, but also in both places, people find hope and joy and peace in Jesus Christ. And out of both religion and irreligion, the church, uh, people who are people who join the church and follow Jesus Christ. So that's how it happens. The gospel awakens the sleepy Christians and enlivens the nominal Christians and non-Christians are attracted and reborn. But here's the, the last question is, why don't we see it happen more? John Stott, who wrote a commentary on Acts, 
said about this passage, that the reason that we don't see things happen the way that Paul sees it happen here is because we don't feel about things the way Paul feels about it. Notice verse 16 again. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That word provoked there is more than just being bothered with something. It's, it's, it's the same, it's the common word that's used when it talks about God being provoked by people worshiping a false God or a false idol. It's the feeling that God feels whenever he was provoked and disturbed and angered, whenever he would see as a jealous God, people worshiping a false God, a false idol. It's something that happened to Paul. It's not something that he worked up within himself. It's something that says that he was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. What he felt was the heart of God for Athens. As he looked around and he saw people feeling around, groping about in darkness. He uses that, that phrase in verse 29, and he made, this is God, made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of them. As he looked around Athens and he he saw people who were groping and feeling about for a sense of joy and pleasure that would be lasting, a sense of meaning for life that would be lasting, a sense of a purpose that would be lasting when he saw them groping about and he would see them grab false idols, false gods that promised to deliver on this joy and purpose and happiness and meaning in life and never could fulfill. He saw that and he was provoked on two parts. He was provoked because he knew, God, you alone are the only one and true God and you deserve all praise and all glory and every single man and every single woman and every child should bow their knee to you for you alone deserve that praise and glory. And he was provoked because he saw something. He saw things receiving glory that his Lord and Savior deserved to get. And that provoked him. It provoked him because he saw that he felt God's heart upon people who would worship a false God where there was by nature we deserve God's wrath and judgment when we try to find joy and peace and happiness and fulfillment and meaning apart from the one who created us by him and for him. He saw that and he was provoked within him, but he also saw the people blind and groping about in darkness. And he felt God's heart for them. Like Jonah, who went to, did not want to go to Nineveh because he, he, he knew that if he went to Nineveh and preached to them, that God would have mercy upon them and forgive them. And he said, they don't deserve your forgiveness, God. They are sinners in your, in your eyes. And God said, aren't there 100,000, I might have the number wrong, but over 100,000 people in that city who do not know their right hand from their left. The reason that we 
we have the gospel. The only tool that Paul and his team took into each city they went was the gospel. And it spoke to those who are religious and it spoke to those who are irreligious. And it called people out from both of them and saw a great work done. But the reason that you and I don't see that happen in our lives and in our community is because we are not provoked within us like Paul was whenever he looked. Because we either don't care that someone or something is receiving worship that our God alone deserves, or we don't care that there are tens and hundreds of thousands of people on the Grand Strand who do not know their right hand from their left. And that's something that should cause us to mourn. This Thanksgiving week that we have so much to be thankful for, it should cause us to mourn. You and I, if you're a believer, we have, we have, we have an, an infinite list of things to be thankful for. And yet the people who live beside us and in our families with us and work with us and drive past us and our business associates are blinded in their minds. They are groping about and they do not know their right hand from their left hand. We're not sufficiently provoked within our hearts. And so therefore, we won't risk our necks. The story of Paul tells us that when we are provoked within us and we put our neck out, that we will see joyous, awesome things happen, but also we'll see we're not going to be the most popular kid on the block. But we'll see eternity change. We'll see eternity change for your family member, and your coworker, and your neighbor, and your friend. The thing that moved Paul was an intense love for a holy God, and God's intense love for a broken people. question for us is, do we have that? And if not, would we pray that God would give us that so that then we could take that gospel to those who are religious and those who are irreligious and see that God would call people from both groups to himself for his glory and for our everlasting joy and that we could see the Grand Strand region turned upside down the way Paul and his team saw Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and beyond. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.